Hello, welcome to another week of the Fiverr Coven podcast. We are so happy to be here with each other and with you and talk about some yarny stuff and some witchy stuff. I'm Lauren from Valkyrie Fibers. And I'm Emily from Kitty with a Cupcake. We got news for you this week. Emily has an art piece in a gallery that you can buy. Tell everybody about it. Yeah, I have a piece in the Made You a Mixtape show at Aurora Gallery, um, which is a really cool kind of like witchy, spooky themed gallery here in Louisville. If you're local, you should go check out the show. There's over 90 pieces from over 90 different artists. We all picked a song to make a piece of art inspired by that song. There's QR codes with the playlist up around and it's like a really eclectic playlist, right? Because there's no like unifying theme other than we just pick these songs to make art from. Uh, so that's super fun. You should go check it out if you're in person. Uh, and if you just want to see my piece, you're not in person. You can go look at my Instagram and the piece is available for sale. You can contact Aurora Gallery. Fantastic. And you also had another artistic venue to, to promote. Yes. So I have a friend who is directing a yarn themed play in Chicago it's at the Lifeline Theater, which is a theater that does pretty much all book adaptations, theater performances. And this show is called Extra Yarn. So very relevant. <laughs> uh, and this is the little show blurb. While her parents work tirelessly at the local factory, Annabelle discovers a small wooden box in the snow filled with yarn that seemingly never ends. Armed with her love of friends and family and her grandmother's knitting needles, she effortlessly knits sweaters for the whole town. But the Archduke isn't too pleased and will stop at nothing to get that never-ending yarn for himself. Bundle up with the discovery of family, friendship, and fighting for what's right in the world. Premier musical by the team that brought you We Found a Hat. Uh, so so. My, my friend Anthony Kayer is the director of the show. It is a musical. This theater company does lots of family-friendly shows. So especially if you have kids and are in Chicago and want to go see a cool knitting-themed play, go check it out. It's open February 18th through March 19th. Sounds like a wonderful all-ages show. Sounds like so much fun. Great. We can jump into our yarn content. We didn't finish anything, but we did work on some things this week. What did you work on this week? I mostly worked on my little, my little neon shawl that I've got going. It looks very Valentine's y right now because I've just it done does. the pinks and purples. So I took a little picture of it with my Valentine's treats uh, mm -hmm. and it was very festive. But this is in Teal Torch Knits uh, Guilty Pleasures mini skein set. And I am just like improvising a little heart shaped shawl. It's just plain garter. I think it's going to stay plain garter. I might do a border. We'll see how I'm feeling. And yeah, so the colors are getting smaller um, as I go through the mini skeins. But because of the geometry of the shawl, they're going to get smaller in like a visually pleasing way. So that doesn't bother me. Uh, but yeah, it's very fun to work on. Very potato chippy. Pretty much all I'm doing. I love it. It is very color blocky and visually pleasing. I have only been working on my big projects this week, so I feel like I don't have a lot to show, even though I've probably eaten up a fair amount of yarn. My blanket has been growing. It's gotten to the point where I need to fold it more so that it can be contained. So I've got another couple inches this week because I'm doing two rows a day. It's a temperature blanket. Uh, we got our first days that uh, got to 50 degrees, so I got to use a new color. Um I love it. I wake up and I look up the temperature and I do my little rows while I listen to NPR. It's my little morning ritual and I love it. 
Nice. I'm really liking the the design for February too. Mm-hmm. This is a great project because every month there's a new design to do. And so like you memorize it, you're like, oh, you get into it. And you're like, oh, and then you kind of get tired of it. And oh, it's a new month. So, so there I am with this. Just I'm so excited to blanket. see all your color transitions throughout the year. Me too. And I love seeing how other people's blankets are going. It's, it's making me super duper happy. Yay. What else have you been working on? I have worked a bit on my uh, adventure blanket, my Lord of the Rings blanket. Uh, Mm -hmm. I am a little over halfway through the old Toby stripey Mm -hmm. here. This is in Mm -hmm. my Lantern Light Yarns uh, Fellowship of the Ring advent calendar that I am going to make for the next three years (laughs) Uh, (laughs) from all of the movies advent calendars. So. It's super fun. I am excited to get to the next mini skein because it is one of my favorite colors uh, of the whole set, which is this 111th birthday. I knew it. I was like, oh, that's the real variegated one with like the rich earthy tones. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think it's going to look really nice because it's probably going to do like the back and forth like stripey parallelogram Mm -hmm. thing in the blanket and it'll be super fun. Mm hmm. Yeah. I have been knitting a ton on my big poncho, but it still looks like an oatmeal blob. I love it, but it's just a big oatmeal blob. And uh, look at its blobbiness. Oh, it's a blob. It's more. It's There's more of it, though. So this is where I was last week. I've been doing linen stitch for the big cowl hood. And uh, I made about six inches of progress on this. And I'm really proud of myself because the linen stitch is taking a long time. I have tried it on and I'm really happy with it. Um, I got some of those uh, knitting barber um, cables that just hold your stitches for the bottom. And I really like that. It's making it go a lot nicer. Mm-hmm. I don't have another pair of needles on the bottom flapping around. Um but yeah, so I'm doing a big old cowl hood and, just, you know, big Jedi cloak, big top hood. I want to put it over my space buns and pretend like I'm Ahsoka with a little like bit sticking up. <laughs> I did I-cord cast off about 10 stitches in the middle here and I'm doing I-cord edging along the side. So hopefully it'll make a nice border along the opening of the hood. Oh, that'll be nice. Yeah. So I'm going to do that for like the length of my face, at least probably and you're, more like, decreasing to make that kind of shaped. I haven't decided it's been keeping me up at nights because I uh, have trouble sleeping, but I haven't decided how I want to do short rows to make it into a hood. I can either do short rows, like a short row heel, like a fish lips kiss heel, perhaps uh, to just make the angle of the knitting turn from like a tube around my head. Well, not a tube, because it's open in the front, but like something that's coming up around my head to oh to the um, turn to the top, or I could decrease it like the heel, the short rows on a standard flap and gusset heel, which kind of would decrease the number of stitches. I haven't decided what I like yet, but I have some time to ponder on it. Nice. Because let me tell you, working linen stitch flat is taking me a lot longer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I really like that choice because it's making the hood a little warmer and it's making the fabric a little thicker, which is what I like. 
I'm not concerned about that for the body of the poncho because it's going to be huge and it's going to weigh itself down. So I want the body to be as light as possible, but the hood being a little nice and thick is great. Like I've tried it on and like the cowl front looks awesome. I'm just so stoked on it. Yay. Mm -hmm. And that's really all I've been working on. Have you been working on anything else? Nope. Oh my gosh. So light on the knitting content this week. I mean, I did, I did knitting. It was just on that one purple stripe. <laughs> I know. I know. We, we worked through a fair amount of yarn, but it doesn't look like it. It's not <laughs> impressive looking. <laughs> well, and we both didn't acquire anything this week, so we can jump right into a cold corner, which is where we're going to follow up for part two of our bit that Emily did on famed spooky person, Alistair Crowley. So, and I uh, did. So you said Crowley just there. And I did go back and forth between Crowley and Crowley. I realized uh -huh. in the episode and it is Crowley or Crowley. See, it's so hard <laughs> for my brain to remember this. It's Crowley. It rhymes with slowly. That's how you remember it. Mm -hmm. So please don't email us about that. I know that I went back and forth. Lauren went back and forth, too. We were both all over the place. It's Crowley, but it's hard to remember. So let's hear more about him. Let's hear more. Hello. So when we last left Alistair Crowley a week ago, he w had just decided that it was time to form his own religious group. Uh, because he, he was, was running out of money. Because he was running out of money. And uh, he had also just divorced his wife. Uh, mm -hmm. So what does he do after that? It's time for more travel and sex magic. Like you do. Like you do. So he goes to Algeria and he does some mountaintop sex, sex rituals and blood sacrifice to some demons, I guess. What is he blood sacrificing? It was like animal blood. Oh, not okay. Not human blood. Yeah. We're talking about just throwing some animal blood around that you picked up at the butcher shop. Not killing things? You're percent sure. Mm. Uh, and then he goes back to London and there he finds out that his old buddy Mathers, who, if you forgot from last time, Mathers was the founder of the Order of the Hermetic Golden Dawn, which was the original secret society esoteric group that Crowley had joined. Uh, Mathers is suing him <laughs> for publishing the Golden Dawn secrets in mm -hmm. uh, his the Equinox publication, which was his like official publication for the AA, his current group <laughs> that he had just founded. And the court ruled in favor of Crowley. And this was widely reported about in the press. And this gained Crowley some wider fame. And uh, he really enjoyed this. And he really played up the sensationalist stereotype of being a Satanist and an advocate of human sacrifice, which was like what was being written in these publications. Uh, and he wasn't either of those things, but he thought it was fun to mess with people. Who amongst uh, us hasn't said sensational stuff that was a lie to piss off the normies? Yeah. Uh, so the AA continues to grow. Uh, he writes more holy books for Thelema. He develops the spelling of magic with a K. So if you, you've definitely seen that reading witchcraft books, like lots of modern witchcraft books spell magic with a K. It's directly because of Aleister Crowley. He is who came up with that. And he came up with that because he wanted to distinguish magic, like stage magic, from mm -hmm. magic, like ritual magic. Mm -hmm. 
another German esoteric group, the Ordo Templi Orientis, or OTO, which is what I'm going to call it from now on, gets mad that Crowley published their ideas. So this just happened. But all I mean, everyone's ideas were kind of the same. They were kind of just like working off the same occulty similar stuff Mm -hmm. uh so crowley meets with theodore Roos, the founder of the oto and he convinces him that it's a coincidence that their (laughs) works are the same and they become buds so this is his new best bud and Roos makes him the head of the oto's british branch and he then goes on to write some sex magic rituals for them and changes a lot of their existing rituals to incorporate sex magic because that was his whole thing. I really enjoyed and like we're, we're not going to get into the nitty gritty, but if you're interested in the nitty gritty, it is available for you to look at. I particularly enjoyed the hierarchical ranking of different sex acts. Yeah, yeah. And and just like they, they did they were doing some wacky stuff. <laughs> they really were, but to their credit, it, they did believe in the female orgasm which many men in their time did not. Yes. Um, we'll talk more about that sort of stuff, though. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll touch on all sorts of weird things. <laughs> so at this point, he has like run out his uh, inheritance totally, and he is pretty much living off his donations from the AA and member dues and payments from the OTO. At this point, he uh, he does some traveling. He's in Germany for a bit prior to World War One, and then he travels to the USA during World War One, where he lives for a couple of years. Um, he makes some money by writing for Vanity Fair. He does lots of sex magic things <laughs> while hanging out in New York uh, with sex workers and male clients at Turkish bathhouses. Like you do. Like you do. And at this time, he begins to write about his support for Germany in World War One. So he's writing in support for Germany against Britain. And he became involved in New York's pro-German movement. And in January of 1915, German spy George Sylvester Virek employed him as a writer for his propagandist paper, The Fatherland, uh, which was dedicated to keeping U.S. neutral in world war one this uh, kind of seems like your standard like i don't like my daddy sort of thing just like i don't like my country i hope they get their ass kicked yeah and at the time he like kind of claimed that it was because he was of irish heritage and that's like why he didn't like england and he wanted irish to be in ireland to be independent of is he Britain. actually irish he like is as far as i could tell it's unclear Mm. okay (laughs) um because it would really fit right in with that whole like i need to be persecuted like i need to have something which is ridiculous because he had plenty already but like it fits in with the like my great grand great great grandmother was a cherokee princess sort of vibe yeah he definitely claimed that he was irish uh Mm -hmm. which is like kind of hard to dispute slash figure out at this point in british history because like people were moving back and forth all the time right but Mm -hmm. both of his parents weren't from ireland so question mark on that one yes so he later 
because he moves back to England (laughs) uh, multiple Mm -hmm. times. So he later claimed that he was doing this and writing for this paper because he was spying for Britain and he was a double agent. But we don't really have substantiation for this. Some of his contemporary biographers did say this, but like he told them that. Uh, We don't really have official documents that indicate this. Uh, Mm -hmm. So he moved about various places in the United States trying to spread Thelema and performing sex magic for various people, um, various (laughs) societies, somewhat notable society people. (laughs) Um, And he takes a brief vacation from doing kind of public sex magic. I, I don't know if it's public is the right word, but doing professional sex magic work. And he heavily uses drugs and he declares himself Master Therion, which is like a uh, amalgamation of heroin and uh, Thelema. <laughs> and uh, hmm. he go- he goes back to New York and there he takes Leah Hersig as his lover and mm-hmm. Scarlet Woman. Uh, and Scarlet Woman is a title that he used for his main sex magic partner. And he had multiple of them. And I I'm probably not going to really cover her that much because a lot of the stuff about her is pretty explicit. Um, Like he wrote some particularly obscene poems about her, like obscene for him, like they were, which is a lot. And he had like some really graphic nicknames for her vagina, but she devotes much of her life to Thelema and Crowley is pretty much destitute at this point. And he moves back to Europe with Leah. So he takes her with him. And he lives in Paris in a thruple with uh, Leah and, uh, I don't know if it's Leah or Leah, I guess, Leah and uh, Nanette Shermway. And uh, Hersig gives birth to a daughter by Crowley, um, and her name was Anne Poupe Leah. And her nickname was Poupe, like P-O-U-P-E-E. I don't know. that is, that's a French okay. cute name, but it sounds like poopy. And at this time, he determines that he wants to start a community of Thelemites, which he calls the Abbey of Thelema. And he consults the I Ching and chooses Cephalu in Sicily as the, the point for this, uh, to, to make this abbey. I like the commune. Mm-hmm. There we go. So he's- a nice uh, free love commune, it sounds like. So he's gone full cult commune now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thruple moves with him uh, and some of their other friends and followers. And Leah had other children before Poupe, and they they bring the children with them. And Crowley describes this time in his life as his idea of heaven. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wear robes. They perform rituals to Ra at various points in the day. And they occasionally perform the Gnostic Mass, which is like a really involved sex ritual mass, basically. And uh, then the rest of the day, they do whatever they want. Uh, So they they don't have many responsibilities. They kind of just like pursue their own interests. And the children are free roaming and they just like play all day and they don't go to any sort of like structured school and they are allowed to witness the sex magic going on oh yeah 
This is a problem that comes up in a lot of free run, free love sort of cults. Mm-hmm. I've heard this one many times, and it's it's one of those things because I mean I don't think children should be witnessing graphic sex acts, but like children should have a realistic idea of what like adult romantic relationships are not not sexual relationships, but like yeah. No kids during your sex magic. Yeah, no kids during your sex magic. It's yeah, and he, problematic. he really gives into his heroin addiction at this time. Mm-hmm. And cocaine starts to erode his nasal cavity. Mm-hmm. And I suppose if he was gorked out, probably might have not noticed the kids floating around during special yeah. orgy time. Yeah, probably not. So wild dogs and cats wandered throughout the Abbey building and it quickly became unsanitary. Mm-hmm. And in October of 1920, Poupe dies. Oh, no. Yeah. And uh, shortly after, Leah Herseg gives birth to another daughter, Astarte Lulu Panthea. It's quite the name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and more followers arrived to the Abbey, including Raul Loveday. And he brings his wife, Betty May. And Loveday was a devoted Thelemite, but Betty May detested Crowley and life at the Abbey. And she later said that Loveday, her husband, was made to drink the blood of a sacrificed cat and that they were required to cut themselves with razors every time they used the pronoun I. Interesting. Uh, We don't really know if this is true or not, but uh loveday drank from a local polluted stream and developed a liver infection resulting in his death in february 1923 and he was a really young man so this was like kind of big news uh and may betty may returned to london and told her story to the press and uh john bull a publication proclaimed that crowley was the wickedest man in the world which when talking about the story, which if you have looked up anything about Aleister Crowley, that is like his main kind of pop culture nickname that you'll hear. Uh, so that is where this was coined. And he really liked that that name. He thought that was amusing. Hmm. So the John Bull stuff, that is some like right wing ultra Christian publication, right? Yes. Like conservative. Well, I don't know if I mean. Those things tend to be right wing, but ultra religiously conservative sort of a publication. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They also said of Crowley that he is a man we'd like to hang. And Mm -hmm. uh, although Crowley deemed many of their accusations against him to be slanderous, he was unable to afford the legal fees to sue them uh, because they also implied that uh, Raul Loveday had like died as a result of a sacrificial ritual But he, like, Mm. just drank some stream water and died, and there isn't really any documentation. Because, I mean, people at the the Abbey were, like, writing stuff down in journals and stuff, and they weren't doing stuff like that. They were sacrificing Mm -hmm. some cats, but they weren't really doing that to people. They were Mm -hmm. too busy being high on heroin. Uh, So. And screwing. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, but because these stories were so salacious, uh, John Poole continued to publish stories uh, and they were picked up in other countries and in the United States. And they were kind of popular because, you know, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing sells. Um, Perfect tabloid fodder. 
the fascist government of Benito Mussolini learned of these of Crowley's uh, little commune going on. And in April 1923, he was given a deportation notice, forcing him to leave Italy. And without him, the abbey closed. So he continues to be destitute uh, and taking on wealthy magic students to survive. Um, he takes an American follower, Dorothy Olson, to Tunisia for a magic retreat. And she gets pregnant as a result. And I'm shocked. <laughs> uh, Leah Hersink is told, who is his current, like, was his previous kind of lady, uh, is told <laughs> to take care of the pregnant Dorothy Olson. And Olson has a miscarriage. But, like, as a result of this whole interaction, uh, Leah kind of distances herself from Crowley. But she continues to, like, believe in the philemic order and like do stuff for them for most of the rest of her life um so Roos, the leader of the oto uh dies and crowley claims that he was named as the leader upon his death uh but this is challenged by a german leader for the oto so he doesn't get to take over um but he like tried to take over that order um so he continues to be super addicted to cocaine and heroin and he scrounges around europe for a few years he marries his second wife maria Teresa sanchez and he writes Moonchild, a novel that depicts the efforts and this is like a fiction novel but it's a novel that depicts the efforts of rival magicians to create the miracle child predicted to be the future leader of their craft and that is like cult 101 is making the specialist baby Yes, and this will get referenced in future episodes. That we're we're going to talk. talk about another person who was doing sex magic to make the specialist baby. Yes. Um, <laughs> so he moves to Berlin and he fakes his own death. To Tell promote. us when he moves to Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's like 1933. He moves to Berlin in the 30s. Yeah. (laughs) I don't Um, know if you know of anything else that happened in in Germany (laughs) in the 30s, but there was some stuff going on. There was some stuff going on. Um, So he moves to Berlin and he fakes his own death and is believed to be dead for two weeks. But it turns out that this was to promote his art exhibition of his paintings. And he shows up at the opening and is like, hey, I'm alive. Classic publicity stunt. Uh, and that works. <laughs> so the gallery opening is a success. I heard this is not the first time I've heard of somebody doing this. Yeah. Uh, so he moves on with several different scarlet women and fathers some more children like you do when you're practicing sex magic all the time. He launches some libel cases against people because he needs money. He loses one of these cases, which adds to his money problems. And he was declared bankrupt in February 1935. And at the hearing, it was discovered that he had been spending three times his annual income for several years. So he publishes his first book in six years, his first book that he's written, The Equinox, which sold well. And he kind of like tours around and does a series of lectures on that book. And he is largely living off contributions from the OTO's Agape Lodge in California, led by Jack Parsons. Uh, So tune in next week for more on that. That's a whole thing. Uh, Remember Mm -hmm. that Moonchild book, too. (laughs) It's going to come up again. 
and Nazism begins to arise in Germany, and Crowley is intrigued, thinking that he might be able to get Hitler to convert to Thelema. Hitler was a spooky bitch, too. <laughs> he was, but then the Nazis abolish the German OTO, uh, and then he decides to speak out against Hitler as being a black magician, like a like a, which is funny, like. You are like the dark magic guy. You're the dark sex magic guy, but you're going to be like, well, he's the bad kind of dark magic. I mean, to be fair, Hitler was a way worse person than Alistair Crowley. I mean, yes, definitely. It's just like, (laughs) it's a goofy thing to call him out for. Maybe call him out for his anti Semitism. (laughs) I would think they kind of, I would guess that that was one of the points they agreed on. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But like, it's just, there's just like two ways that like I'm just thinking of the ways that like contemporary people talked about Hitler like Tolkien was a contemporary like he lived through both world wars and he he has a famous quote about Hitler being I think the quote is a ready little ignoramus for like corrupting the Nordic faith that Tolkien found so so appealing whereas like Crowley's over here was like well, I like that he that this Hitler guy is not Christian. Oh, he doesn't like my specific spooky <laughs> branch, Black Wizard. Yep, yep, exactly. Uh, so when the Second World War breaks out, uh, Crowley writes to the Naval Intelligence Division offering his services as a fake spy, but they declined. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> um, I'm sure it had nothing to do with the fact that he was on tons of heroin and cocaine. <laughs> or that he had been really pro-Germany like famously in publications in World War One. He publishes another book in 1944 which is The Book of Thoth. Is this something you know about? I know that is the basis for a famous tarot set. It is. It interprets his new tarot deck, The Thoth, that he designed in collaboration with artist Frida Harris who was an OTO initiate uh, and to aid the war effort, he also writes some poetry on the rights of humanity, uh, Liber Oz, and a poem for the liberation of France. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so the the Thoth, directly written by Aleister Crowley. Yes, that was on my list of things I wanted to look up, but didn't get around to was looking at that tarot deck. Yeah, there's some. It has some like different hierarchies and some specific stuff. He was like trying to update the Smith weight deck, uh, both in art and some meanings. But I have a guess that it's mostly just cultural appropriation of Egyptian stuff, which he seems to have really liked. Yep, I think that's pretty correct. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, so that was like what he did uh, later in life. In 1947, on December 1st, uh, he died of chronic bronchitis uh, and myocardial degeneration at age 72. Huh, and his that's a pretty fun- long life for a guy who uh, lived fast and loose. Yeah. Uh, and his funeral was held at Brighton Crematorium on the 5th of December. About a dozen people attended. Mm-hmm. And uh, excerpts were read from the Gnostic Mass, the Book of Law him to pan and the funeral generated press controversy and was labeled a back black mass by the tabloids because they were reading like the sex magic book and stuff. that he wrote yeah that he wrote 
Yeah, so uh, both during his life and after it, he was described as a Satanist, usually by rich attractors. Um, he stated that he did not consider himself a Satanist, nor did he worship Satan because he did not believe that Christianity was real and therefore did not believe that Satan existed. <laughs> but he did enjoy playing with Satanic imagery to kind of like bug people um, with his The Beast 666 nickname, which is kind of like his little like sex magic nickname for himself, like how he was calling his ladies the Scarlet Woman. Mm hmm. Um, and he also referred to the Whore of Babylon in his work. And this one was abusing. Uh, later in life, he sent out anti-Christmas cards to his buddies. That's something I would do. <laughs> but yeah, Aleister Crowley, that was his life. Yeah. Now he, is it time he, to touch on his very... Oh. Quite the life. <laughs> he did live quite the life. Yeah. So many things. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So that was like general life overview we said at the beginning of the first part of his general life overview that he had some pretty problematic views and like i just wanted to bring that up again because he founded this religion and so there of course anytime someone founds a religion and people are like followers of that religion they're gonna say oh well he was he wasn't problematic he was fine he he loved all people blah 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 mm -hmm. but he was like definitely pretty racist and misogynist he was extremely prolific in his writing as we saw throughout his life story and he wrote down not great things about the people in the various cult uh, cultures and countries that he was visiting he did advocate for sexual freedom for both men and women and he argued that homosexual and bisexual people should not suppress their sexual orientation which is pretty progressive obviously he said a person must not be ashamed or afraid of being homosexual if he happens to be so at heart. He must not attempt to violate his own true nature because of public opinion or medieval morality or religious prejudice, which would wish he would were otherwise. So that's fairly progressive for the time. And but it did seem like participants in the sex magic group believed that all participants should have an orgasm, which is nice. Yeah, but he did have conservative attitudes towards women still. He was against abortion on moral grounds. And uh, he said that this was because he believed no woman following her true will would desire an abortion. So like, way to go. You just like declare that you know what all women desire. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They don't have their own thoughts. Um, and he also described women as moral inferiors at various times. Uh, but he did argue that the religion dilemma was essential to women's emancipation. Like he was arguing that they would be more equal in his religion, but he was also like actively trying to make money off of his religion. So like maybe he was just trying to get more female members. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, he had yeah. really anti-Semitic views, which were obviously pretty prominent in europe at the time um, he had a jewish friend yeah he had a jewish friend but he like <laughs> said some questionable things right. about him and he said lots of questionable things about jewish people in general but he loved to take some jewish imagery and like parables for his own writing so it's just like <laughs> yeah but yeah i mean like many other westerners at the time he had deeply held racist views, and, but he was also fascinated with the culture 
of other people and places that he visited. Um, so there are quotes where he's saying terrible things about Chinese people being subhuman, but there are also quotes of him saying Chinese people have a superior spiritual energy to that of the English. So it's just like a real mixed bag of problematic nonsense there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the sense that I really kind of got from him is like he's like the first libertarian yeah, <laughs> uh, a white man that came from wealth and privilege who had just enough distance from that to realize that like, hey, maybe we should let people do what they want and love who they want and make their own choices, but not enough to realize that like, this is not an option for you if you're poor. And the reason that a lot of people are poor is because of racism and colonization and such. So, and it, it's interesting because although he was, one of the more progressive, like, let's just say Englishmen of his era, wealthy Englishmen of his era, it's still like deeply problematic by our standards. And it kind of reminded me a lot of how in like American spiritualism in the same time period, a lot of those people were abolitionists and proponents of free love and things, but they were also like pretending to be mediums, channeling Native American spirits and just perpetuating the noble savage myth and like all that BS. It's the same sort of thing. Like a wall, though, they were like the most progressive in their set that is still rife, rife with deep problems. Yeah, people are complicated and we should acknowledge their complications. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, I guess at the end of the day. He liked to screw and he liked to be in secret societies and he liked to play dress up. Yeah. He also liked chess and climbing, which I didn't even talk about the chess, but he really liked to play chess and he liked to climb some mountains. Aye. A complicated man with a ton of life experiences. So many life experiences. I skip stuff. I skipped whole <laughs> mountain expeditions to Mexico. <laughs> like There's a lot. Yeah. So... In terms of his influence on, uh, like, Western occultism today. Uh, so much. So much. Uh, so Gerald Gardner, uh, who is the founder of Gardnerian Wicca, which is, like, the main Wicca, used a lot of Crowley's published material when he was writing his ritual litur liturgy. And Crowley is just, like, a generally dominant figure in the pagan community. And you can definitely see the foundations for modern Satanism, too. Yes. Um, so uh, Anton LaVey and Michael Aguino uh, were influenced by his writings and they kind of they have like written the book of Satanism and stuff. Yes. But it's just the same sort of libertarian stuff, like do no harm, take no shit sort of stuff. Yep. And the other person that he really influenced was L. Ron Hubbard, the American founder of Scientology. L. Ron Hubbard was an involved in Thelema in the early 1940s and we will talk about that next week oh no that was a spoiler I was going to keep that secret oh I'm sorry well anyway I was going to do it like they did in the lore podcast so lore had actually won a few episodes back about kind of the west coast Thelemic movement but the way that that host did it he kind of kept it secret he started he called him like Lafayette Oh, I'm it'll sorry. be more. It's okay. <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna rip off the lore podcast and do it that way, but it'll be fun, just as much fun knowing that like this kid hanging out with all these West Coast like 
like goth oddballs was L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to have another couple of cult corners where we talk about the like ideological descendants of Aleister Crowley and all that good stuff. But we also have tons of pop culture references that like the way Crowley influenced everything. I think you had some stuff on like, like metal music, not metal music, just like British rock. So he Mm -hmm. had a huge influence on British pop culture. Uh, and he's one of the figures included on the cover art of the Beatles Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And his motto of do what thou wilt was inscribed on the vinyl of Led Zeppelin's third album, uh, Led Zeppelin 3. And Jimmy Page bought his house and lived in his house. <laughs> wow. And there's yeah. also a passing mention of him in a Bowie song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I have, I'm sure there's tons of, there's probably like oodles and oodles of Crowley references in, in in the horror genre and the supernatural genre, but I will say the television program, 2005 Supernatural, drew heavily on Crowley's symbolism. There are male demons named both Alistair and Crowley, who were major characters in Supernatural, And they also used one of his symbols. I saw Crowley or Alistair Crowley's symbol of the uh, unicursal hexagram was only mildly altered to form the men of letters symbol in um, Supernatural. And then, of course, there is a demon character named Crowley in Good Omens, which is a delightful book by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. If you haven't read it or watched the show, it is silly and irreverent and delightful. But that's the whole reason that their demon character is named Crowley. And then also, um, just last night, the episode I watched of What We Do in the Shadows had like a joke, like short time, short, like it was supposed to be an instructional video in black and white. And it was just a creepy old white dude that comes on and goes, do what thou wilt. And then the, the clip ends and then I didn't get it then. I just thought it was funny. And uh, this morning I got the joke that that was an Aleister Crowley reference. Nice. So yeah, super fun. He is popping up in today's media. And stay tuned for subsequent weeks to hear about uh, Jack Parsons and good old L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> we are excited about that. Mm-hmm. Great. Woo. I think that's a cult corner for this week. Fantastic. So uh, we have a couple things to promote this week before we sign off. I'm going to be having a shop update on... Sunday, February 19th at 9 a.m. Pacific. I will be bringing back my Mando self-striping colorway. It's called This is the Way because I don't want to get sued by Disney. I think it's really good. I'm going to have it on High Twist BFL and Matt Saw. Although I will say, um, okay, so my intention for this colorway is it's alternating between short and long stripes. And on my Matt Sock, I managed to do that just fine. <laughs> But on the BFL base, I didn't really measure my stripes. I was kind of flying by the seat of my pants when I was dying. And it's kind of a unique uh, stripe length sequence. And so I did a little swatchity swatch. So you can see, I'm gonna, I made a video like this that I post, uh, I will have posted onto my Instagram by now. So I originally wanted, like the intention was to go like short, long, short, long, like in this section here. Mm-hmm. But um, that kind of started to be more mid- medium length stripes here so yeah so the section with the yellow and the cream and the blue and the light brown is kind of like i intended it was short long short long but this um grungy like deep brown 
and grungy green and silver. They, there are more mid length stripes, relatively even. So if you wanted a unique dye lot, maybe the BFL is for you. I think it looks great. And Yay. I think it's important to remember that while those stripes are irregular within the sequence, all the sequences are going to be the same. So it's not like your sock is going to have like crazy different stripes across colors. It's just going to repeat. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I kind of like the way it looks. I think yeah, it looks good. Neat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's me. Yay. I have a B-grade sale up on my website. It is going away today if you're listening to this. So go check it out before it goes away. Uh, and that is all of my uh, seconds, some people call them enamel pins. They are pins that are slightly less than perfect. I do have videos up on my Instagram and TikTok where you can see examples of how they may be slightly less than perfect. There's also a blog on my website under the news section that you can see pictures of how they might be a little bit different. And they're all super on sale. So if you want to save a bunch on some really cute pins, check that out. You know, be great is a really good way to put it because like that's what they are. They're like, they're maybe they're not A pluses, but they're really like good B pluses. They're not fails. They're yeah. so close to, they're like, they're good. They look mm-hmm. great. I have a bunch of your B grade stuff and I love it. Yeah. Fantastic. So if you are looking to find us anywhere around the internet, you're looking for my yarn, Emily's merch or patterns, just head on over to fibercoven.com. That'll have links to those things. It'll have links to the show notes for this show and also to our Patreon where we have a lot of cool stuff going on. We do a whole nother podcast. We have video versions of this and we have a rock and discord group where we're trying to set up a somewhat regular virtual craft night. Yeah, we had our first one this month and we're already planning our second one for next month. We're stoked. So fibercoven.com for all your fiber coven needs. And until next week, keep making yarn magic. Bye. Bye. Bye.